Hello, welcome to another episode of the Firm Returns podcast. Today I'm joined by Brett and Ryan from the Chit Chat Money podcast and Arch Capital. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Yeah, we're we're excited to be here and uh, talk Nintendo. Yep, thank you for having uh, us on for this conversation. Excellent. So um, maybe we could start by you guys telling us a little bit about yourselves. Um, how did you come to start Chit Chat Money and your fund Arch Capital? Brett, you want to go or you want me to? Yeah, I'll hit. Maybe I'll hit one, and then you can do the other. I'm or we at Chit Chat Money. We started this in college, which is I think coming up on. It'll be five years later this year, so I think we're in our fourth year. And we started it then. We were both interested in investing. We both went to the same school, and we are like, hey, what's a way to kind of grow in this potential industry we wanted to work in? And we kind of were listening to some investing podcasts at the time, and we didn't really see much about – just there was definitely not as many out there at the time. So we are like, hey, there could be an opportunity for kind of a younger – you know, host and stuff doing, you know, stuff maybe that I don't know, other people aren't doing. It evolved through different iterations of the kind of the style. We tested out a few different themes, basically. We're like, okay, what is the show going to be about? And then we kind of landed on individual stock analysis as our main theme. And we've done that for the past few years. We're basically every Tuesday, we release a episode that we call ingest because everyone calls things deep dives, right? We call it a not so deep dive. Um, and we go through an individual company, basically hit all its fundamentals, kind of earnings, everything, go through history a little bit, basically get an up someone up to speed that listens to it on the company. And then we do a couple of other shows as well. We have we'll have interviews on there, basically with say like an analyst like yourself, uh, going through a stock they know well. And maybe either pitching it or just talking through it. And that's really it. And we've been doing it for a few years now. We're just chugging along. And Ryan, do you want to talk about the fund? Unless you have anything to add about Chit Chat Money. I guess as a plug, listen wherever you get your podcast. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we we started in college. Um we actually kind of the spark was so Brett was a couple years older than me, and we played on one of the sports teams at the university and they it was like right when the bitcoin craze had first kind of started like it, it was it was like shooting up and brett fortunately i i had brett on the team because i was like oh this is interesting you know as as everyone does when they first get started and they see things going up and brett it goes kinda... up so i want to buy right that's what everyone <laughs> does for the first couple of months they they learn about investing right yeah <laughs> so... i think brett kind of cautioned me and led me in the right direction and kind of gave me some some things to read and that's kind of where it started and got up to speed that way and then we had been doing that for a couple of years and definitely steep learning curve at the start and kind of got a good grasp on really how we want to invest and and how we want to um I guess manage our own money over kind of the long run and we had some families kind of express interest because I think a lot of them had listened to the podcast before and they kind of liked the way we went about investing and they expressed interest in letting us uh, manage some of their capital. And so we formed the partnership around, I believe it was right before COVID. No, no, right oh, after no, no, COVID, it was, it was 2021, right, well, sorry. 
Yeah. Well, it depends what area of the world I guess you were in, but yeah, it was February 2021 was when the fund officially launched. So we did call the top in growth stocks. We did. Uh, so congrats. So sorry to everyone out there for, <laughs> for some guys in their 20s launching a fund. But yeah, that's when we did. It. And it's been, what, a little over two years now. And yeah, yeah, we're just chugging along there as well. Yeah. So that's kind of the the approach for us. We have We have the podcast to kind of share our research allowed with our audience, with our, our friends, and and hopefully use it as a sounding board to get feedback on some of the ideas. And um, then we uh, manage manage charge capital and we, we try to share that publicly as well. All our holdings are online and, and really we try to be as public as we can while uh, just focusing on our own investments. Yep. And yeah, the last thing I'll say is like Ryan mentioned, we really try to take the learning in public thing to heart. I know it's very some people can be critical about, say, you post an investment idea publicly, you know, not everything's going to go well, but we try to have thick skin and we know that everyone generally is going to be very nice and, you know, receptive. If we're sharing our ideas with other people, we think, you know, they'll share it with us as well. Uh, so, yeah, we definitely want to be kind of in that learning in public camp and not be secretive really at all with with anything we're doing. Yeah, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? But I've I've definitely seen the advantages of sharing it publicly. The the key thing is just to not let it prevent you from <laughs> from selling yeah. something, for instance. Yeah, hundred percent. The one thing to avoid. Yeah. Um. So just following on from that, I mean, how did you? How, how difficult is it to actually start a fund? I mean, I I imagine in America it's a little easier. I think in the UK it's it's nigh on impossible if you haven't. You have to go and do all sorts of qualifications and things like that and pass all sorts of exams and then probably have um, work for some other firm for a while and things like that. Is, is the process more streamlined in America? You it's found? definitely a little, a little bit. There was a, there's a law firm out there. There's law firms that have kind of healthy streamline the process, um, but it's still, it's costly. Still, it's costly. And we did go the cheaper route just because we're sending up a really basic fund and we we're kind of starting from scratch. Like, and cheaper doesn't mean the structure is any different. It's more of just, we want some really basic boilerplate documents and we're going to get started, but it takes how it takes at least a few months to really mm. get all the paperwork going. There's a lot of paperwork. Sure. It's, it's a little confusing to learn. Um, but once you get started, it's not too difficult to run. Obviously you got to hope yeah. that your investment returns are good though. And yeah. And I guess we can talk maybe if you want about like the raising money aspect and stuff like that, but it's very it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem, especially if you haven't worked at a firm, another firm before where you got to establish the track record before you can raise money, but you can't establish a track record unless you raise money. So you, we plan to just start out with a small amount of you know assets under management and hopefully solve both of those problems at once. And then, you know, kind of treat this period as obviously we're trying to, you know, build good returns, but for all our clients and do them do well by them, but we want to establish a track record. So outside mm -hmm. investors, you know, can see, hey, they've been doing well for five years. Maybe I can give them more money. But, but yeah, I don't I, know if you wanted us to go <laughs> down that rabbit hole, but I think the process probably sounds more intimidating than it actually was. You know, it, you see a lot of the funds that are bigger, have a lot of analysts, they have like legal counsel on their team. And it just sounds very costly and expensive. And if you have the money, I think that's maybe all those resources are worth it. But there are ways I mean, you just kind of go step by step, find find law firms that can help. Um, and we ended up being able to do it and manage it for a couple of years and it isn't too costly now. So um, there was, a lot of the costs are optional. 
that it is it is doable if you want to do it but just you know know there are some expenses involved in the process yep that's interesting yeah and i think that speaks again to the the advantage of um making all public and doing the the podcast and what have you is it really helps to you've got a public record that then future investors can look back at and yeah so just a final point on on um on the fund then and your your general investing star i mean how, how would you describe your approach to investing yeah i think this will show up when we talk about nintendo later but i would sum it up as from a broad perspective we're looking to own 8 to 15 companies generally concentrated portfolio uh i think we're trending a little closer to 15 at the moment i can't remember but yeah generally 8 to 15 companies one part of the portfolio which is the majority of the portfolio at least at the moment is going to be you might call them compounders but there are three qualities we're looking at in these companies we want them to be with management teams that we trust which again that'll eliminate as you probably know a lot of management teams out there unfortunately a lot of public company ceos they might not you know they're maybe not the best um Mm. as we all know Second, we want the company to be something that we can predict or what we, you know, a small subset of companies, whatever type of businesses out there that we think are predictable. And that really means that they have a competitive advantage. So we're looking for the classic, you know, durable competitive advantage. And then third or third criteria that I think a lot of us all learned over the last five years or so, kind of during the bubble and the popping of the bubble is waiting for the right price so we want to ha- really wait even if we like a business and we think it has a very great long-term prospects if it's trading at say 35 times earnings 40 times earnings we do not want to buy that until it gets to that one moment or it may never get there where it gets to a cheap multiple of you know 15 times earnings for a really strong growth company and we want to hold these companies forever and then the other side of the portfolio is going to be something that we think can balance out throughout say bear market periods or periods where a lot of the you know compounder type stuff that we're looking at is very expensive and these are deep value stocks that is following more the classic uh you know buy something that might not be the best business but it's trading at two times earnings and it might be trading significant significantly below book value anything to add there Ryan no i would just say we have like a couple companies in the portfolio that are more on sort of the deep value side, kind of maybe people would call them workouts, which was kind of Buffett's term in the early days, but it's more like not necessarily wonderful businesses, but we think we can get a good return just because they're valued so cheaply. But then we also, I think for the most part, we look for businesses. We really prioritize like the qualitative assessments, like making sure it's a business that will grow over time because of some durable competitive advantage and so those are kind of i think that's more what we look for but we will we keep our i guess constraints limited because we don't want to be cornered into looking for a certain type of company we want to be able to invest in anything so even like the 8 to 15 that's generally what we follow but if it were to get outside of that we want to have some hard constraint that says we have to reel it back in we're able to be flexible but we we basically know where our core competency lies and we're not very good. I don't think at predicting this quarter, the next quarter, but I do think we have a um, good process in place for determining what businesses are going to do well kind of in the long run. So that's what we're targeting. 
Excellent. So, um, yeah, today we're going to have a look at uh, one of your holdings, which is Nintendo. Um, so I'm sure many listeners will have heard of Nintendo and have an idea of what it does. But for those who haven't, do you think you could just give a quick overview of the company? Yeah, I can I can go right into that. If anyone is interested in a super long history on the business, there's a two-part series that the podcast acquired that goes through this company is, you know, over 100 years old, so there's a lot of stuff in there that is quite interesting but not really relevant to the business today, but Nintendo is one of the biggest video game companies in the world. They basically transitioned into this uh its current iteration of its business model or basically becoming, you know, video game centric in the late 1980s. And they are a maker of both gaming hardware and gaming software. So this makes them a little bit unique, or at least, you know, I guess Xbox and Sony have been trying to get into the the content side of things. But Nintendo is really the first one to be truly vertically integrated in this model. So they make gaming hardware and they also make games along with that hardware that they sell exclusively on their consoles um, or console slash hardware because i guess they have a hybrid console mobile um you know gaming device now and these are the games that people probably know mario that's if you didn't know was owned by nintendo and then all the characters associated with that but they also own a lot of other stuff as well that is their first party content that is generally the most popular stuff on their systems this could be zelda for anyone that didn't see they just had a huge launch with their new zelda game they have a giant investment in the Pokemon company, so they have a very tight relationship with the Pokemon company. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, Nintendo is also based in Japan, and the Pokemon company is as well. They've had a relationship ever since Pokemon got started. So the Pokemon games, a lot of them will be exclusively on the Nintendo consoles. There's Animal Crossing. There's Metroid. I'm probably missing a few others. There's Kirby. There's Ryan. Splatoon. Splatoon is a new one. Lately. Yeah, so they have those. And then if we go to how the business model works today, they have one piece of gaming hardware, and it's called the Nintendo Switch. And it is a hybrid mobile, um, what would you call it? Technically three pieces of Well, it's the same. I mean, it's the same. Same family. Yeah. So it's a hybrid um, console mobile device where you can play on a TV screen and... You can play, say, your games, but you can pick it up and it actually kind of has that handheld device as well. And they've sold 125 million of these since 2017 when it launched. And to give context to today, for investors, we're kind of looking in the next year or so to maybe have a new updated uh, system launch. And yeah, they make money by basically selling these pieces of hardware at a, you know, maybe at cost or at maybe a small profit, but they make the majority of their money by selling the high margin software which in this case is the games along with it excellent um so yeah i mean one of the i've had a look at a few um people's takes on on nintendo and i mean one of the common concerns investors often have when looking at the company is the apparent cyclic uh cyclicality to the revenue and the earnings um so in the last 20 years we can see a big peak around 2009 with the success of the Wii followed by a trough related to the lackluster performance of the the Wii U and then we see another um, switch to an upswing with the uh, success of the Switch and that sort of started in 2017 uh, which just looking at the 
past revenue of the last couple of years seems to be leveling off a bit. Um, and, and the share price has largely followed the revenue trend. So it's currently not a long way off the peak seen in 2021. Um, so, so my question is, uh, what indicators are there that we aren't at a cyclical peak for the company and that we're, and we're not about to see revenues and share price decline? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's the most important question. And it's really one that we are on an ongoing basis trying to assess. And I think we have a good grasp on why we don't think it's cyclical anymore. But that is probably the number one point that determines the uh, stock price. So um, ultimately, the num- I guess the metric, or it's not even necessarily a specific metric, but the indicator that we're not at the top of a cycle is how many people are actively playing the switch. And so we're six years and change into this, the switch console cycle, if you want to call it that. And we still have kind of really good data around sales. So I guess the annual playing user base, they, they report that. And although it's not the perfect metric, um, it's continued to grow every year. So they have 114 million annual playing users. Brett mentioned how many switch hardware pieces have been sold. So it's a big chunk of those. And it's 114 out of, I think, 125 million consoles. But keep in mind, some households have multiple consoles. Um, and then on top of that, they, uh, they you can kind of look at it through actual game sales. So um, like I said, we're six years and seven months, six years and five months into the Switch console cycle and Zelda, the, the game they just released was the fastest selling game in Nintendo history. And so it tells you that there's still that kind of active player base ready to buy games. Um, the other part is Nintendo Switch Online subscribers continue to trend upwards. This is really kind of the most important thing, I think, that differentiates Nintendo today from the Nintendo of the past. Previously, whether it was the NES, the Game Boy, whatever, what pick your console, the Wii, the Wii U, I'll go through uh, Super NES, Virtual Boy, Nintendo 64, all of these, they, they were all, your account was tied to the piece of hardware. I mean, they, the cloud-based model wasn't really introduced yet. So they rolled out the Nintendo Switch online account, and now it's more of this cloud-based model where your games are saved, your progress is saved, you can add on additional digital content, and it makes it a lot easier to upgrade from one Switch hardware iteration to the next. So a lot more like the Xbox or the PlayStation ecosystem. Um, So people that had the original Switch could have bought the Switch Lite, could have bought the Switch OLED. Maybe they're going to buy the Switch 2, the Switch Pro, whatever it is when it comes out next. And it's just a much easier upgrade. You don't feel like you have to restart from square one. And so that's why as that installed base grows, it becomes easier for them to kind of unlock that operating leverage because when they have a long development cycle for a game like Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, now they're selling to a much bigger player base. And so you should start to see as those big games get rolled out, continuous record-breaking performance, assuming that the games are well-produced. And so that's there's a lot of different indicators you can kind of look at, but ultimately what we're trying to gauge is basically, are people still actively playing and everything we've seen continues to point to yes. So that's kind of where we're at. And I guess the sales thing you mentioned, 
hardware sales have come down because there was a really big jump in hardware sales during COVID. Everyone wanted to switch. Um, and then they, they tailed off, but the actual game sales are staying pretty steady, which tell usually when someone buys the switch, like the actual hardware, they're going to buy a couple of games with it. So if the game sales are staying steady, even though the hardware sales are declining, that tells us that the existing player base is still purchasing games. So it's kind of this, they're fighting this headwind of hardware sales coming down because they haven't released that, that newest iteration, but software or game sales kind of staying consistent. So ultimately we think game sales are going to account for the majority of revenue, but it's going to take time. Yeah, and something I noticed as well was that um, the peak we're seeing today is has sort of significantly higher profit margins than the 2009 peak. So, I mean, is that is that like an uh, an impact of of what you were sort of saying there with the yeah? How how would you sort of explain that? Is that something along those lines? Yeah, the, the this has generally happened across all of the video game companies out there, the software publishers, where over the last decade to fifteen years. We've transitioned from majority, you know, buying the games in a store uh, at a retailer or I guess, you know, on something like Amazon online as well, where you have a physical disc along with the package and you have to say purchase it not directly from Nintendo, but from another retailer. So and then excuse me. And then today we've transitioned from direct digital downloads, which means, say, on the Nintendo eShop, which is what they call it. You can directly buy the game. It downloads without any physical copy onto your Switch, and that's transitioned to around 50% of sales, give or take, Or and it's transitioned higher over time during the pandemic, kind of threw things a little bit for a loop because it kind of overwent the trend, but the long-term trend is still on this path of going from less physical sales to more digital sales. And the key thing with that is that one, you know, there's less cost of goods sold because you don't have to make the manufacturing, you don't have to make the disc, and second, you have less of a take rate getting paid to the retailers like a Target, like a Best Buy, like whoever. So this has helped increase their profit margins a ton. They're, uh, specifically with Nintendo, is they've increased the Nintendo Switch Online membership, which again, is, it's actually fairly cheap. There's two tiers. One is only $20 a year, which kind of gets basic you know, online play capabilities. Another one's $50 a year, and that also adds some um, add-on content from some of the software like it's included and then some of the legacy uh, or a lot more of the old legacy titles from say Game Boy, NES, whatever for some of the older people that enjoyed playing those games. That's some very high margin revenue as well. Or at least the incremental margins on that are extremely high because you're just paying for content that's already being made or just online capabilities. And the more membership you add there, the margins are going to increase as well. And I think compared to the Wii era, you know, the Wii was popular but it was really with a few titles um, that, as we all know, there was the Wii Sports, or I guess maybe people don't know, but those were very popular because of the motion and controlled. And then I guess in like, you know, their other brands, the Mario Kart and Super Smash Bros., those are fairly popular on the Wii, right? But a lot of the stuff on the Wii that was actually popular, the Wii Sports was included with the console or were very cheap when you bought them, say 20, 30 bucks maybe a little more expensive on the switch. We're seeing a lot more of the, I don't know if I'd all call them triple a titles, but for example, the new Zelda game that already sold 
most likely over 20 million copies, is getting sold at $70. And the incremental margins on games are extremely high. So as you say, go from something that would be a 5 million unit seller to a 15 million unit seller, the gross margins on those 5 to 10 million are going to be very, very high. So that's another reason why I think the most important indicator for investors, yeah, it's hardware sales because that's a leading indicator, but it's active players and software unit sales because of software unit sales, which again, accounts, you know, subscriptions and then also basically game sales on the Nintendo Switch. As those climb higher, you're going to see not only revenue grow, but margins start to expand. So it's very, very accretive to the bottom line if you can scale, especially in Nintendo's case, because it's vertically integrated, but a gaming console business. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so something else that's been quite cyclical is the company's cash balance, which um, while remaining uh, very high throughout the cycle, um, it seems to be that they, they really don't like taking on finance. They're really trying to finance everything internally with their own cash. Um, they, they seem, it seems to be roughly double at the peaks versus the troughs. Um, and returns of capital to shareholders in the form of dividends and share repurchases are also concentrated around the peaks. So um, what are your views on the company's cash balance and capital allocation historically and, and going forward from here? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. I'll try to hit this one quick. But if yeah, if we look at their market cap today in US dollars, I believe we're at about $53 billion market cap and they have zero debt and they have Close to, if you kind of add in their securities investments, it'd probably be closer. And again, it depends on where the yen versus the US dollar is trading, which has been quite volatile the last couple of years. Um, Let's say we're at about $13 billion to $15 billion in cash and liquid securities. Could be a little lower depending on working capital, all that good stuff. So it's a big chunk of the market cap. And there's a lot of people that are clamoring for Nintendo to, you know, pay out maybe a special dividend or buy back more stock. They've done a little bit of that and they, they, they pay out a dividend, but again, the, versus, you know, their payout ratio is nowhere near a hundred percent. And it's definitely like, I don't know if they keep earning, you know, the, if, if they keep earning the levels that they are, their cash balance is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. But I think one thing investors miss here, and yeah, it is a downside that they're a little bit more conservative. They're not optimal on that. I think we just got to accept it, but Say in the, the Wii U period, things weren't extremely dire where they had to, say, raise some expensive debt or something like that to kind of stay in business. But they were burning cash for a few years, and they said they want to run the business for the extreme long term. They want to be a part of the global entertainment landscape for like forever, basically. <laughs> they all talk about like, I know, being a, you know, a forever company that's around and with people's lives throughout multiple generations. They want to make sure that any sort of that financial insecurity that happened in the Wii U period doesn't happen again. So they've been building up this cash balance, but they, I think what people miss is that they have the buffer built up. And now that they, all the excess cash that they generate now from, say, I don't know, adding on to this 13 to $15 billion cash balance can be returned to shareholders because they have them, even if they, didn't generate revenue or you know had a down period with a new hardware release, they would be fine for multiple years. And I think management can be a little bit opaque and they don't really say exactly what they're going to do. But as the company, here, here's what I think either happens. 
the company generates so much cash and it just sits on the balance sheet. It becomes a huge part of their market cap or they eventually return it to shareholders. And I think another thing, like another thing that's big is that Japan has kind of, the government has gotten really onto these companies and saying, look, we have very conservative culture from a shareholder perspective here. We want to be very caught. You know, we have a tradition of being very cautious with our businesses to make sure we're not taking crazy risks, but we gotten a little bit too far into that direction and our valuations are way too low. We're not being optimal here. And they're trying to force a lot of these companies to return cash to shareholders. I think Nintendo, you know, to Nintendo shareholders could definitely benefit from that. We're seeing a lot of at least a transition from these Japanese companies to being shareholder unfriendly to being a lot more shareholder friendly. And I think Nintendo will benefit, but to be honest, it is definitely a downside. I don't think it's something that we could spend to be entirely positive. Like they're going to have this cash balance. I don't think you should expect them to be super optimal with it. And that's just part of the deal. I think you got to price it into, you know, your, your assumptions. I guess it all depends on, um, whether, yeah, the, the revenues stay high or, or fall off. If they do stay high, then yeah, like you say, the, that incremental, cash ad it is, comes, is it, available it, yeah <laughs> like like uh like i said before it all comes down to the you know stable software unit sales that's it yeah so um yeah recently the company is well recently we've seen the company begin to expand out beyond games into into other media so um we, we saw the recent success of the mario brothers movie and we've also sort of seen them move into collaborations with is it universal studios for opening some theme parks yeah. So, um, do you think that the move towards turning their IP into sort of multimedia franchises, a la Disney or whatever, um, is set to continue? And and how do you think it will benefit the company and, and shareholders? I think it will continue. Um, I don't think it'll ever be quite Disney-like, and I'll talk about why that is in a sec. But to kind of put some numbers behind the Super Mario Brothers movie, it was released. I want to say April 5th and it was the best selling animated movie of all time on its opening weekend. Um, now granted it had a five day opening weekend. So I think frozen two was the previous yeah. best and it had like Which a is, three day. Yeah. And for reference, Mario's already the second best ever and frozen two is number one. So I guess that kind of lines up second best ever. I've been over a billion in box office. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it, Closed with like $1.35 billion globally in box office sales. And so I guess originally when we had heard that the movie was coming out, we're like, oh, great. This will be like a good touch point for people that maybe haven't experienced the brand. Maybe it'll be like uh, some nice sales on top of things. Maybe it'll drive some switch sales. Um, but it, I think it surpassed pretty much everyone's estimates for how well it was going to do. And so um when we kind of look at the economics of how these work, the box office is really apparently it only accounts for around, I want to make sure I get the numbers right. I think it's 20 to 30% of a movie's total revenue. So they also earn money from things like at-home sales, TV distribution, streaming deals, which I think it's it's on it's available on Prime Video. It's available on a bunch of places now. Maybe they end up getting some streaming deal in the back end. But I think they could potentially end up doing four billion, five billion dollars in total gross sales for the movie over its 
life. Now, Nintendo doesn't get all of that. They have to split with the box office. They had marketing costs. They have to split the revenue with Illumination slash Universal who helped produce it. Um, but a lot of the stuff after the box office is higher margin. So like the streaming deals and the at-home sales, all that stuff's a little higher margin. So there's a path to this potentially generating half a billion to a billion dollars in earnings for Nintendo. Um, the movie and so if if that happens i mean they did 3.3 billion dollars in net income for the last 12 months so it's not tiny i mean this can actually impact the the bottom line for the company whereas we thought maybe it was just a nice way for new people to interact with the the franchise it, it can actually be accretive to the to the business so yes i think it can help financially they've also very directly said we're going to do more of these. They want kind of a universe of movies. And there's even, okay, if you haven't seen the movie by now, that's that's not my fault, but I'm going to spoil it. At the end, there's like this uh, hint at a sequel. So um, it's pretty clear that they want to do more of these. And then I think in an interview, they even like just straight up said like, yeah, we're going to do a, a lot more films like this. So yes, I think there's a world where you can produce a movie for Luigi, a movie for Donkey Kong, a movie for Zelda, stuff like that. Um, and then on the theme park side, it's Disney puts up a lot of the capital for their theme parks. Nintendo does not. The, the investment is largely from Universal, and I believe Nintendo just gets like a 4% take rate. Um, on all ticket sales plus a flat annual fee for each park. Not yet. Not confirmed, but that's what we've heard from another analyst. So it's not going to be it's not going to be the revenue driver. Parks are not going to be the revenue driver for Nintendo that they are for Disney because they're not going to collect all the revenue from it, but it's going to be really high margin revenue because it's basically like franchise fees. So um, you know, maybe it's tiny to the revenue side of things, but it could potentially be a a, a decent addition to earnings. Um, but I think the the big thing here is that it is providing a lot of different touch points for people who maybe haven't experienced the brand. I think if you go to a park, let's say you watch the Mario movie and you never, you didn't have a switch at home, but you, you watch the Mario movie. And we actually saw this based on sales data that came out of the UK the weeks after all the Mario games started to sell better. I think the switches started to sell better. So you get. I think they actually put get, in put some of them on sale, didn't they, to try and to boost that kind of uh, yeah, yeah, synergy yeah, between exactly. the two. Yeah, and so it's just giving people more kind of attachment to the franchises, and ultimately, it kind of I hate to use the word flywheel effect, but I think it's perfect here because you know you watch a movie, you go interact with these characters potentially at a theme park. You're going to want to buy the next Switch, buy the next game for Mario because you want to see kind of the next evolution of its story. So um, I think it's just earnings accretive marketing, essentially. Um, it, it's like they're getting paid to market, advertise the brand in other ways. So um, I think that's kind of how we look at it. It's still going to yeah. be a video games driven business. Brett, do you have anything to add? I was going to add, I guess maybe Ryan, you were about to say this, but they talk about this explicitly in their IR presentations that even though the movies, like Ryan mentioned, are revenue generating and are going to generate profits, the key thing they want to do is take all these non-gaming touch points and drive engagement back or 
just keep fans and you know uh liking their their gaming business because that's the core thing that's their core money maker it's it's where they're going to generate the majority of their profits and they want they, they describe it with a little graphic of we're going to have basically it's it's very similar to the old walt disney one where you have everything driving in on itself but it's all the the gaming business is at the center so they want to take that touch point say some kid goes to a theme park with their family the the you know, the the dad and mom might be 35 something years old. They probably played some Mario games with the, when they were a kid, but they haven't for 15 years or something like that. And they have a six year old child or two kids that are like six and eight years old. They go to Mario theme park or what's it called? Super Nintendo World. They fall in love with one of the characters and they go, hey, what do we want to get for Christmas this year? Like, I think we get a Nintendo Switch and buy some Mario game for the kids. They loved Mario. And I think that's the key reason that's what nintendo wants to happen and that's what we think is happening around the world great so um maybe we can we can move to talking a little bit about management and um and corporate governance and nintendo you just give us an overview of this guys sure i think the brett kind of touched on this earlier i think the focus of management is longevity above all else um, being around for a long time to kind of paint a picture i believe the company was first introduced in the 1890s and there have only been it might be seven now but i think there's only been six presidents of the company over that time so it tells you like the tenure of the management teams that that come to nintendo when you're when you're at nintendo for an executive you're basically a for lifer um and so that's why they, I think that kind of paints the picture of them being very pro, very focused on making this company last as opposed to optimizing shareholder value in kind of the next year or two, which is, it's quite different than some of the businesses based in the US. Um, around governance and I guess like management's um, maybe shareholder values they have gotten a little more friendly in capital allocation wise brett's mentioned that they've done some dividends and share repurchases more so than they have in the past but really it's uh, i mean they're focused on like i said uh extending the life of the business um and really making all stakeholders happy kind of maintaining good positive employee relations as well as making sure their customers are happy the the key thing with that is they don't do microtransactions they could easily do that that all the other games do and consumers hate it but nintendo is the one that even though they can make a ton of money doing this they can say mario kart add-ons that could be a huge business they don't do it um and that's because they want to make their players happy above all else which in the short run as shareholders we might get frustrated as but in the long run they're nurturing the fan base that much better and their durability is going to, the chance that they're a durable business is that much higher. Yeah. And I guess in terms of who's important at the company, Furukawa is the current president. Um, but I think probably the most important person is Shigeru Miyamoto. He's kind of the creative mind behind the company. He's the creative mind behind Mario, I believe Zelda. Um and kind of the Walt Disney of Nintendo, if you want to call him that, he is getting on in age. Um, so, if there, if he were to pass or something like that, it would be a potential risk because he really has been the brain behind a lot of the cre- like the, these brands that people absolutely love. And so, um, that if that was stripped away, 
it would be a problem. I don't think, I think at this point, Mario, Pokemon, Zelda, these franchises are going to run for a long time, whether Miyamoto's there or not, but maybe on kind of, it's hard to replace someone that creative. Um, and so maybe when it comes to like new franchises, there might not be quite as much development. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about the microtransactions. I think Disney's just released a a karting game and it's absolutely rife with them. <laughs> so yeah, it does show you the, the different mentalities of the different companies. And they're not going to be like Nintendo. I mean, I guess this could happen, but I have very, very confident they will not be releasing 10 movies a year. They would probably lean on the side of yeah. being more scarce with their movies. They're not, they don't juice their franchises. I think that's shareholders get frustrated with that. But I think over the long run, again, it means that their chance of being a durable business compared to other entertainment franchises is that much higher. It means when they release a movie or a new game or something, it has a much more yeah, it's value a, it's to it. It's an event. Yeah. yeah it's a big but, event and people care about it. They want to. Here's something that Miyamoto says. I think it's a famous saying he invented is uh, a ru- like a rushed or uh, a delayed game can still be good. I think it's, I'm botching it. Like a delayed game, so you delay it for a year, could still be good, but a rushed game that gets released early is always going to be bad. Mm, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think just in terms of like the franchises and stuff, you really have started to see a bit of um, devaluation of franchises with like Marvel and some of the other superhero ones and things like that, just because of the the sheer volume they're doing. And especially when they... they um, they move to putting things onto TV and stuff like that as well. People see it inherently as a as a lower value. Yeah, and, thing it, and that's a, so on, yeah. That's a great point on Nintendo as well. I think the comparison between say the TV or streaming stuff with Nintendo would be the the, the big uh, growth in smartphone games over the last decade plus, where there was a lot of pressure to put Nintendo games onto the smartphones, and they put a few. I think they have like six or eight, maybe. And they're kind of free titles. They don't really make any money at all off of them, or it's not significant. But none of their mainline games are going to be on smartphones because they think it devalues it. They can't control it. They would much rather have it, okay, when we release the Pokemon game, when we release the mainline Mario game, when we release the mainline Zelda game every five years, it's going to be on the Switch or whatever they call it. And that's the only place you're going to be able to get it because we can control the customer experience and they have that expectation of where it's going to be. And, and yeah, it's, it's easier to, to monetize without resorting to microtransactions and things like that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think definitely what you were saying earlier about the, um, the idea of having all these kind of auxiliary components, like the theme parks, the movie and stuff like that. And obviously the movies is, it's potentially going to be a big revenue driver this year, but just in general, having them as, as funnels into the, into the games businesses, I think they're really the right way to do this kind of franchise model for a for a games company. Um, yeah, so it's good to see Nintendo following that path. Um, so on a along a similar line, um, what what does the shareholder base look like for Nintendo? I mean, is it is it predominantly domestic or are there international investors with significant significant stakes as well? Uh, so an interesting thing about the Japanese market is that actually the the Bank of Japan owns a big stake in a lot of the companies, which is again unique about them. So there's a big stake from the Japanese. Uh, what do they call it? 
the ma- I have the list up here, the Master Trust Bank of Japan. So the government influence is maybe larger than it would be in another country like the United States or Europe or somewhere over there. But and that, that comes back to the idea of how the government's trying to, you know, mandate a lot of these companies to be better with their balance sheet, return a little more capital to shareholders and stuff like that. So on that end, it's important. But then on an international front, if we look, they they actually list this and I I'm not going to do the math because some of these are treasury shares. So technically they're like shares that were repurchased, but it says here they, they list another website, which is nice. Anyone can go find it on their investor relations page. Uh, foreign institutions, it is 46% of shares outstanding. And then the rest is basically Japanese, right? It's obviously Japanese. So it's a decent, you know, international shareholder base. And there's not really any, say, activist that is a huge stake anymore. There was someone that took one a while ago, but they really haven't shown to be activists or at least publicly activists because I think maybe Nintendo's doing a lot of things that they're happy with. But you really have the standard stuff. JP Morgan, you know, there's the Bank of Kyoto, uh, State Street. And besides that, I don't think there's anything too important here. There's not like a founder that owns a big stake or anything like that. But besides that, I think the most important thing is, again, the Japanese government influence from a shareholder perspective. And besides that, nothing too important. Yeah, I was going to ask that about the kind of the insider slash sort of founder um, point of view, because you were mentioning about how the executives seem to generally be lifelong you know, executives at the company. And I was wondering how that kind of works in terms of um, alignment of incentives. Do they, do they have, you know, good, reasonable stakes relative to their salaries and what have you? I, I don't think, I mean, like people talk about this for us. I think it's, it's uh, we don't care too much about that. We actually get frustrated when management teams talk about incentivizing themselves with a bunch of um, stock, you know, whatever options and stuff like that, because it's like, Look, if you're going to work at Nintendo, which would be one of the most fun places to work in the world, they want to work there because they want to make beautiful games that people want to play. They do not work there to become the richest. Like we, we like that their priority is we are passionate beyond all else about making these games for people to play. It, the ownership stake in the business, if they're getting paid a boatload of money, on it's not a priority for us. It's not a huge, like, I don't know. We don't factor that in. There isn't any, there's no big insider ownership like Brett mentioned. Yeah. There was, there was a period uh, when the original founder, I think this maybe happened twice. Like he found who his successor was going to be. And this is kind of just an interesting anecdote. And so he adopted him. Because like if you kept it within the family, it was like some oh, the Japanese, tax benefits uh, or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was a family business technically for a while, but he, he was just adopting his successor. So, um, no, I think you know I think we're 130 years past it. So any sort of insider ownership has pretty much dwindled away. Yeah, that's quite an interesting anecdote. Um, yeah, so. Maybe we can move on to to how you guys go about valuing the company and sort of what you think the potential upside is from here. Yeah, I, there's a lot of ways to go about valuing Nintendo. We've seen this is a pretty, you know, I'd call it a, not really a battleground stock, but either people become very bullish or very bearish, which I think is pretty interesting. So there's a lot of different ways people go about it, but we like to keep it very simple. Like I mentioned before, just to give context as of this recording, 
We're at about a $53 billion market cap. And given their cash balance, which again, it's in yen on their balance sheet, and it can fluctuate a little bit quarter to quarter just because the yen's been a bit crazy. Let's say you subtract that out with no debt, you get an enterprise value of about $40 billion. So you're buying X cash, $40 billion of what Nintendo is. They also have a stake in the Pokemon company and a couple other things, but let's exclude that for now. So let's just say $40 billion. That's what you're buying. That's what your earnings power that you're going to earn as a shareholder has to be based off of over the next decade plus or however long you own it. Over the last uh, 12 months, and again, this has actually been hurt because of foreign exchange a bit. They were between, say, in between three to four billion dollars. And we think, given where the yen is at, like they can probably, it's probably closer to four billion dollars, but it's just being a little, there's a headwind right now because of the currency. So let's say right now they're earning about four billion dollars. They earned a little bit more during COVID because there's a boost in game sales, but the number's four billion dollars. So we think that they really don't have to grow their earnings much. In the future, to earn to earn a great return, because you're getting a 10% plus, you know, earnings yield, which translates pretty well into cash flow. If they just keep this business going, and don't really grow it, so what we think is okay. Are they gonna? Is it gonna stay the same? So the big question is, are they going to release this next console or next gaming device, and is it gonna be successful? And I think that's kind of the big risk, and all signs we've seen from the durability of this console is that if they get something that people want to play in the Switch style, which again is the hybrid mobile console device, then they're going to earn money because they, the games they make are typically good. They have a very, very good track record. And if they have an active player base that's large, they're going to hit that incremental margins that's going to be lead to huge profitability. But besides that, and... It's very hard to, to, to discuss through because there's so many variables. And again, like if the new consoles will flop, well, yeah, the stock's going to go down. But if they keep up this earnings base in the gaming business, about $4 billion a year, I mean, over the long term, the stock's going to do well. And then if you add on some of this optionality within the video, the movie business, we think there's potential upside to hit, you know, and if maybe margins expand on the gaming business, which they have and they should as we kind of move fully digital over the next decade. We could see them doing five, six, seven billion dollars in earnings a year, and that's even more upside. And downside, the number one thing is the new console doesn't sell well commercially. And on top of that, doesn't have active players like they have in the past. We think, given what we've all talked about during this episode, what all of management has been saying, you know, about connecting, you know, the Nintendo account to the new device with basically everything they've talked about of not wanting to have a Wii U versus the Wii. We think the new console likelihood of success is high, but again, on the downside there, like, look, the stock's not going to do well if the next console is like a Wii U, but that's the risk we're taking. We think the risk of that is lower than what people say. And it's impossible to run a DCF on Nintendo. I mean, the numbers you're going to put in are going to be wrong. The earnings are not steady. This is not like a Netflix from a revenue perspective, and you have no idea like how some of these flagship games are going to perform. Like no one, were, if you were predicting what the revenue was going to be this quarter, you would have never predicted that the new Zelda game is going to be the best-selling game ever, maybe, uh, on a Nintendo device. So, yeah, well, excluding Wii Sports, but 
yeah. Ryan, anything to add there? Because the valuation thing's tough, but it's more of just, again, it comes down to, is the new console going to be successful? Yeah, I think basically to own it here, you have to believe that it's more of an iterative ecosystem of consoles as opposed to basically you have to believe that they're going to continue to expand on the Nintendo switch online uh, player base and make everything accessible through there. And if that's the case, which everything seems to point to that being the case, then there's a whole lot of different inputs you can factor in, but earnings will likely grow. And so, and probably at a healthy pace. So at 12 at times, at the, at the very least stay the same. Yeah. And I think it trades at like 12 times or, trailing earnings today which i think are a little depressed uh i think the math gets pretty simple that if earnings grow at a healthy rate you're gonna make money yeah what's interesting as well is i mean it seems like a a pretty it could be a pretty easy home run if they if they just simply upgraded the hardware to use some of the sort of newer generation of mobile chips i mean you've just seen what the steam deck's been able to do for instance the kind of games you can run on there if if Nintendo yeah. could to could do something along those lines, of maybe a bit was, smaller form factor, the Steam Deck is a bit a bit unwieldy for for mobile play. But if you could just take something like that with the new yeah AMD chips or whatever, you could you could really just see how they could start bringing in some AAA games and stuff like that that um that are, are more close close to the current generation, which is potentially then an expansion of their revenue potential of the platform and the player base and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I would add on to that is we just had a trial between the Microsoft Activision Blizzard and the FTC in the United States, and people have to talk in that under oath. And with uh, one of the things that came up is that they're asking about the new Nintendo console, which is great for anyone that's following because they're super secretive about what, about what it's going to be. And the thing that they said is that they heard the these you know executives at Microsoft and Activision Blizzard that it's going to be a PS4 level capability which is a big leap from the switch uh it's kind of incredible the switch sells so many copies because the graphics capabilities are so far behind the ps5 and uh what's the xbox one called i don't know series but, x series x yeah. but if anything nintendo if you're listening just take the playstation route and just call it two <laughs> because everyone gets confused on the xbox one but i think that's a good you know that's a great sign from us that if it's ps4 level capabilities yeah it's still behind but they're always behind on graphics and that'll give them another you know leg up and one of the disadvantages they have hopefully will be closed a little bit um from their competition which the steam deck i guess is one of them yeah i mean it'd be unrealistic to think they could do like the ps5 or something given the small form factor um but this ps5 can't do a handheld mode so you know <laughs> right that's <laughs> and again matters, i think yeah. people yeah, people forget that that the, the key isn't the graphics and people talk about like eh, it's not like look it's about the hybrid handheld, and it's about the IP. The Mario games, they're going to look fine. They're not these clunky graphics from the 90s anymore. Almost all the games people play, the graphics is really not the issue. It's mm. how good are they? Absolutely. Well, I think that's a pretty good point to end on, chap. So maybe we can, I can give you guys a final word to sort of tell listeners where they can go and find your podcasts and 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 what everything else you wanna you wanna mention? Yeah, th thank you for having us. Uh, I'll try to keep it quick. You can really, again, first off, it's a search chit chat money on 
anywhere. If you search on Google or your podcast player, it'll pop up. So any podcast player you're listening to right now, search it. You'll be able to find it. Follow the show. We're also on Twitter. If you enjoy there, we're also on Substack. If you want to follow the show there. And then if you want to look up the investment fund, it is archcapitalfund.com. Those are our two ways to get in contact with us or follow along what we do. And if you email us or we have contact touch points across a lot of our places, it'll be in the show notes. It'll be stuff like that. Email us, talk with us, DM us on Twitter. We always like to engage with anyone that's interested in stuff. Um, So yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. All right, guys. Thanks a lot.